Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. The human experience is traversing the realms of addiction and unbreaking your mind as we welcome my guest, Maya Salovitz. Maya, it's a pleasure. Welcome to HXP. Thank you so much for having me. Maya, you have to be one of the most brave people I've I've read about, encountered. Um, I mean, your story is quite compelling. Why don't you lay the foundation for that for us and kind of tell us about who you are and what you're doing, please? Oh, sure. Uh, so basically, uh, in my 20s, I had a very severe cocaine and heroin addiction. I was shooting up dozens of times a day. I ended up facing a 15 to life sentence for uh, selling coke. And I was basically miserable. Hmm. Wow. Um, okay. And and you've shifted that from writing writing at least seven books and I mean, you write for Time Magazine. What happened? How did you go from you know using these these substances and being addicted to them, and to you know where you are now? Sure. Well, to to get there, we have to go back a little bit. Before I became addicted, I was at Columbia College. I had been a straight A student. I was a very driven person, and that you know was sort of from birth from the time i was really really little i was always sort of obsessive and that i think gave me both the ability to succeed and the ability to be horribly addicted when i became addicted and for me what the addiction was mostly about was that i couldn't connect socially i was very intellectual. I was very alienated. I felt unlovable. And when I found drugs, it was sort of the first obsession that I was going on and on about that other people actually wanted to listen to. (laughs) And so that made me very favorable towards drugs. Also, when I got to college, I was sort of terrified of the whole new social scene that I had to once again deal with. Um, I had finally made a few friends in high school. And so then college, I'm thrown into this whole thing, and I was just terrified. And I discovered very rapidly that if I had cocaine, people wanted me around, and I didn't need to worry about, oh, they hate me, they think I shouldn't be here, because when you are bringing the coke, people are very happy to see you. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, that that sounds like quite the situation. I mean, there's there are certain hallmarks of addiction and kind of pattern recognitions where you can. I mean, there's there's genetic traits and personality disorders. I mean, what did you what did you discover as while you were writing this book as some of the misconceptions that we have regarding addiction? 
a lot of people think that there's a single addictive personality. And that is one of the biggest myths about addiction. That's this idea that if you have sort of one kind of addictive obsession, you won't be able to control your use of any other substances. And if you're addicted to gambling, you'll also be addicted to food and sex and drugs and all different types of drugs and alcohol. Um, while it's certainly the case that addictions do tend to run together, it's not the case that everybody with addiction is susceptible to all addictions. The other myth about the addictive personality is that all people with addiction are liars, are compulsively antisocial, are, you know, just basically nasty, horrible people. Hmm. And in fact, um, the things that predispose people to addiction can range incredibly widely. So if you're a really anxious and nervous person who is oversensitive and who really is quite a caring person, you might be very high risk. But you also, if you're on the other extreme of that, if you're really bold and actually somewhat callous, you're also at higher risk. And most people don't have both of those characteristics, at least not at the same time. Um, so, and certainly not most people with addiction. Um, so addiction is sort of, uh, you know, there's, there's a sort of joke, um, addicts are like everybody else, only more so. Mm -hmm. Um, and that kind of captures the fact that it is extremes that predispose you, but some of these extremes are opposite to each other. And the idea that all people with addiction are compulsive liars or are dishonest or are fundamentally bad people is, is just false. Are you saying that it's not solely based on physiology and it, it can be based on other things? Well, um, this depends on if you want to get into the mind-body problem, but the my point is really that addiction is a complex multifactorial thing. And so Genes do play into it, absolutely, but so does the environment, and the environment plays into it in an incredibly complex way over the course of development, so that things that happen very early on can have an outsized um, effect, and even the way you interpret your experience is important in addiction, because, for example, you can't be addicted to something if you don't know that the drug causes the effect that you like. Hmm. Let's let's explore that further. What do you mean by that? So, like, there are people who will go into the hospital, they will have surgery, they will be on opioids long enough to develop physical dependence on the drug. And then they go home and they basically go into withdrawal. But since they have no idea that they have developed physical dependence on the drug, they don't have any craving for it since they don't know what to crave. Um, and they are actually, in that instance, they are not addicted. They are simply physically dependent. But hmm. in order to be addicted, you have to know that it's the drug that solves your problem. Interesting. So it's, it's more of a, a mental, psychological thing. Absolutely. And when people talk about you know, the horrors of opioid withdrawal, the physical stuff really isn't that bad. Anybody who's had any serious medical problem as well as an uh, opioid withdrawal experience can tell you that most serious medical problems are most are way worse. Um, I once had hepatitis A and that was definitely way worse than withdrawal. Um, but the, um, the point is that what really is horrible and causes suffering in withdrawal is not that physical thing, it's not the puking and the sweating and the shaking. I mean, those aren't fun, but it's the mental agony. It's the sense that you will never, ever have a sense of safety or comfort or pleasure again. 
and it's like breaking up with, you know, the love of your life. And that's where the pain comes in. Um, I personally kicked heroin about six or seven times. It was, I never relapsed during the withdrawal part when I was sick and feeling lousy. I always relapsed like a couple of weeks or months later when I was like, oh, I'm fine. I can do this on weekends. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, how do you, how do you feel about the role of policy and where legislation is in regards to addiction and like how, how our society and the stigma of being addicted, being an addict? I mean, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous the way we deal with this. There is no science whatsoever to our drug laws. There is no rational way you could make a case to have marijuana illegal and tobacco legal. That is just not anything that can actually be based on anything other than racism and colonialism, which is what it is actually based on. Um, until we recognize this, we're going to be struggling with these really lousy, absurd drug laws. Um, if we want to say addiction is a medical problem, which I believe it is, uh, it is absolutely absurd to think that criminalization is going to help. And in fact, addiction is actually defined by the DSM, Psychiatry's Diagnostic Manual, as compulsive behavior despite negative consequences. Negative consequences is another word for punishment. So therefore, if punishment worked to fix addiction, addiction wouldn't actually exist. So we're really dumb in terms of our drug policy. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I mean, it it feels like the war on drugs has been abject failure if you look at it from the stance of helping people. If you look at it from the stance of enslaving humanity, well, yeah, the war on on drugs is a, a gleaming success. Yes, I mean, it's it's a success at racism and it's a success at creating mass incarceration. And I suppose there's some employment involved with that. But <laughs> it is absolutely not a success at controlling demand, at controlling supply, or at dealing with drug-related harms. In fact, it tends to make them worse. So, so Maya, let's, let's get the, at the root of this. I mean, it, I mean if, if you're just a normal person, I mean, if there is such a thing, but if, if you're just kind of operating on you know, a regular schedule, you have a nine-to-five job, and yet you use cocaine on the weekends, I mean, what, what's wrong with that picture? I don't think there's anything wrong with that picture unless you are harming yourself or others. Um, addiction is not using on weekends generally, um, although you you can have certain addictive patterns where you binge and you know spend all your money on coke every weekend and then can't pay the rent. Um, but if you are in a situation where your drug use is not causing harm to you, is not messing up your career, is not um, messing up your relationships, you know, is basically um, uh, pleasurable. Uh, that's not addiction, and to my mind, that isn't anything the state should care about. I mean, what in your opinion is? is an addict looking for? I mean, it, it seems like people who are drug seeking and look, they're, they're searching for a way to escape this sort of pain, this internal soul pain that they have. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that addiction is very often a search for escape. Um, there is, there are so many different ways you can get into addiction, but the vast majority of them do involve some sort of uh, self-medication. Um, about two-thirds of people with addiction and an even larger number for women uh, have severe childhood trauma, and there's enormously high rates of sexual abuse amongst women with addiction. Um, so, you know, a lot of people are trying to self-medicate that. Um, there are 
um, also there's also a really high prevalence of uh, mental illness pre-existing mental illness among people with addictions. So the same genetics that predisposes you to, say, depression can also predispose you to addiction, either because it makes you more vulnerable to the drugs themselves or because you want to feel better, so you start taking them. So you're saying that having a mental condition kind of amplifies your either need your need for that, that certain drug that kind of alleviates those symptoms? Yeah, well, I mean, if you have any type of mental illness or personality disorder, you know you're different from other people. You're different from other people in different ways, um, depending on what your actual problem is. But the, you know, you know that you stand out. You don't feel comfortable. You are not happy. I mean, mental illnesses are defined by, you know, causing significant impairment and disability. So who wants to feel awful all the time? Um, yeah, people are generally seeking ways to, you know, feel okay and to connect with other people. And drugs often offer a way into that for a lot of people. I mean, one of the things I think is really sad is that, you know, if you look at a high school, if you want to be in any clique, it's hard. But the drug users pretty much accept anybody as long as they take drugs. And that's a very admirable thing in some sense, um, but it is sad that that is the group where um, that acceptance is there. Hmm. Yeah, so I mean, we're probably going to jump around in this conversation, but going back to genetics, I mean, if you look at sort of the studies on adoption and like twin studies and uh, twins reared apart, I mean, what have you seen in your research in regards to that as far as well, addiction I mean, goes? Most of the research on that is on alcoholism, and basically that shows that about half the risk is accounted for by genetic factors. And it's probably the same with other drugs, but the data is not, you know, there's just, there's not as many people with addiction to the other drugs, so there's not, you know, as much data on it. Certainly not going back generations the way there is with alcoholism. Uh, but it is absolutely the case that, you know, genetic factors play into it. And there's a huge range of genetic factors that can have an influence. For example, there is a gene that um, is common in Asia that makes you quite uncomfortable when you drink. Like your skin turns red and you feel like warm and it's, it's not pleasant at all. Mm -hmm. And so those people with that gene are at like 10 times or some really high number. They're really less at risk. However... In Japan, where that gene is quite prevalent during the, I guess, 80s and 90s, uh, there was this whole, there developed this whole really heavy drinking culture among business people. And what you saw then was that even with the presence of this gene, the number of people with the gene that developed alcoholism was like three times higher during that time period. So, you know, people's choices and people's um, cultural pressures also play a big role. I mean, where are you at with the whole 12 step? You talk about um, the kind of the concept of kind of hitting rock bottom. And I mean, is, is that a falsehood? That is a very, very, very destructive myth. Um, the idea that if you just make things bad enough for people with addiction, they'll get better. Um, has caused a lot of abuse, a lot of death, a lot of psychological damage. 
a lot of making a lot of people's lives worse for a really long time in the name of something that simply is not the case. If you look at when people recover, people are actually more likely to recover if they still have a job, if they still have their family, if they still have resources. Um, I mean, if you just think about it logically, who would you pick as most likely to recover, a doctor or a homeless person? Mm, Yeah, so true. I mean, have you found that addicts move into other forms of sort of addiction, like a person who is addicted to cocaine going into kind of addiction towards sex? Yeah, I mean, people can certainly do that. Um, It just, you know, that happens to about half of people with addiction. They will um, develop uh, more than one. Um, But it's, you know, is it universal? No. Um, Are there people who can have addictions to, say, um, alcohol, but not marijuana? Absolutely. Are there people who are addicted to cocaine, but not pot? Yes. Um, so, you know, it's not always the case that everybody needs to be totally abstinent forever. Obviously that's the safest route to take, but the, um, this idea that, you know, you must be perfectly abstinent from everything. If you've ever had an addiction to anything, uh, just is unrealistic and also incorrect. Yeah, I mean, um, and where I mean, where is your research as far as like harm reduction and bringing I mean, what what is it that we can do to kind of help people who are struggling with this? Sure. So um, as with helping anybody else, compassion, love, affection, support, treating people with dignity and respect all matter tremendously. Um, In addiction, what basically happens is that um, the system that allows you to fall in love with people or, you know, care for your baby gets misdirected towards the drug. And so in order to uh, help that system heal, relationships are critical. Um, And so what people with addiction need, they don't have any lack of pain. What they are missing is often hope and love and support. And so tough love is exactly the opposite thing that they need. Now, that's not to say that you should, you know, tolerate an addicted family member beating you up or stealing from you or doing any kinds of nasty things. It's just if you throw them out of the house, that will help you, not them. And it is, by the way, perfectly acceptable to do that to help you or your own family because you can't help anybody if you are being abused. So, um, you know, it is sometimes necessary for people to cut people with addiction out of their lives for that reason. Um, it just doesn't work to save their lives. It may actually do the opposite. Wow. Yeah. You know, I was reading, I was reading this story uh, prior to this interview about uh, this, this woman, this, this girl who uh, was struggling with, with heroin usage and her parents found her needles, kicked her out of the house. She ended up becoming homeless I mean, the story got much, much, much worse. I mean, like, what is, I mean, what is your opinion about just throwing someone into kind of a rehab facility? Well, it usually doesn't work. Um, The thing with opioids in particular is that the only treatment that we know that reduces mortality, and it reduces it by 50 to 70% or more, is indefinite potentially lifelong maintenance with either methadone or buprenorphine, which is better known as Suboxone. So um, throwing somebody into an abstinence rehab um, will actually just put them at risk of overdose that is way more severe than when you started with 30 days after that. 
Um, you know, a lot, one of the um, incredible things that has happened in the last few years is Hazelden, which is the model for the 28-day rehab and which, you know, uh, is very strongly into 12 steps and complete abstinence from everything. They were finding that many of their patients who had opioid addictions, unlike their alcohol patients, the opioid addiction patients would go out and they'd be dead in a week. Um, and so they now have decided that they will be doing uh, buprenorphine maintenance for some of their patients because uh, otherwise they die. Um, so it is really important to know, A, that um, the best treatment for opioid addiction is not uh, residential um, abstinence treatment. Um, and it's also important to know that coercion is usually not the best way to go. Um, treatment in this country has suffered an enormous amount because it basically gets people that are forced to be there. Um, if you are making cars and your customers are forced to buy them, you don't have to make very good cars. Um, if your customers are forced to go into treatment, you can do absolutely awful things to people, which treatment unfortunately sometimes does. Um, you know, a lot of treatment in the past and, and some still to this day is based on the idea that we will make you hit bottom. We will make you feel powerless. We will attack and humiliate and try to break your personality into pieces. Um, you know, who would voluntarily choose that? You know, the reason people with addiction avoid treatment is not generally that they're having so much fun getting high. It's that most treatment they know doesn't work and treats them awfully. Wow. I mean, it's horrifying. It seems like the culture that we've established in regards to, you know, the stigma behind, behind drug use and the criminalization aspect of it is just, it, it's so completely backwards. It really is. And what's, what's very odd about it is that, um, you know, the 12-step treatment providers have gone around saying addiction is a disease, but the treatment is a self-help group that teaches you prayer, confession, and restitution. And so people quite logically react to that by saying, you don't really think it's a disease, you think it's a sin. And that's not to say that many, many people don't find help from 12-step programs, but it is to say that they are not modern medicine. Hmm, interesting. You know, I was, again, for the research for this episode, I, I, was, I saw, I ended up seeing an, a sign in Amsterdam uh, on the internet that said uh, the cocaine that is being sold on the street ha is cut is actually white heroin uh please be careful and um four tourists have died using this i mean what an amazing approach i mean if if we just kind of looked at this as a health disorder rather than a criminal disorder maybe we would make some some progress well, we absolutely would because we're throwing away money and people's lives right now. I mean, why does anybody think that putting someone in a cage is going to fix any kind of psychological problem? It makes absolutely no sense. Um, the idea that locking people up for possession would be helpful for anything is ridiculous. The, you know, the idea of that is to make it so stigmatized that people won't do the drugs. But obviously that has failed to work. And it is ridiculous that we are saying we must, de we must destigmatize addiction, but we criminalize it, which is the opposite thing. Like it, it's just, you know, counterproductive. I mean, do you find that most addicts want to get clean and they're just, they're, they're, they're so compelled, the, the compulsion is so high that, I mean, they, they just can't. 
Well, I mean, I think it's complicated. First of all, I would urge you to avoid the word clean because that implies that people who are still using are dirty. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, we just use this horribly stigmatizing language. So, and, and I have to catch myself. I try to use people with addiction as opposed to addict um, because we don't like in news coverage, we don't say that person's a schizophrenic. We say that's a person with schizophrenia, but we say that person's an addict. So anyway, but yeah, we just... Um, we do so many things backwards. And yes, people with addiction um, often are ambivalent about quitting. Um, they feel, you know, again, imagine giving up the love of your life. Imagine feeling like, you know, you've been loved this way only this one time, and now you are giving that up. Like if you heard a song that was your song, or if you, you know, saw like that person on the street, you would probably want to talk to them. Um, you know, it's not surprising that it is hard to get over addiction, but what I think, I think love is the best comparison to it. And yes, like breaking up totally sucks. And some people actually do suffer physical withdrawal in breaking up with people. Um, you know, it, you know, the, basically in the brain, um, love is the template that gets captured by addiction. Um, but the good thing about that, and the thing that I think is important to stress is that Falling in love isn't breaking your brain. Falling in love is a deep emotional form of learning that is very hard to undo, as anybody who's ever been dumped can tell you. Um, but the, um, you know, but it's not impossible, and it's not brain damage. Um, it is simply a state of maladaptive learning. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, is there a point? And this is, I mean, this is just kind of a rhetorical and for the audience question. Is there a point where you think it's too late to help someone? No, um, I think that there may well be people whose lives are so traumatic and so um, compromised by mental illness that they may not be able to maintain abstinence. But there's lots of things you can do to help people in that state. First of all, you can help them have a home. Um, second of all, you can help them have access to drugs that are safe and not, um, uh, you know, impure. Um, you can be kind to them. Uh, you know, uh, there, are, there are many, many different ways of dealing with people, but we just have to get rid of this idea that the only acceptable state for a human being with, ad with addiction is like, being absolutely drug-free all the time. Now, that can and absolutely does happen for some people, um, but it is just, you know, we, we just have this idea. I mean, it's almost, it's like a form of prejudice that if you have this substance in your blood, you are a bad person. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've done some work on suicide as well. What's your, what's your stance on that? Well, I mean, what I was, I think what you're referring to, I, I did some articles about um, overdose and suicide. And one of the things that I think we really, really need better data on is that we really don't know um, what percentage of overdoses are actually suicides mm -hmm. or are these kind of weird, like the person doesn't care if they live or die. Um, and I think it's really important to know that because when we want to prevent overdose, we want to tell people, hey, don't mix alcohol with like heroin and benzodiazepines because that's a really deadly combination. Um, but if somebody doesn't care, they may, or if they're actively suicidal, they may be like, okay, good, there's the recipe. 
So this doesn't mean we don't provide that information, but it also means that we need to find out, like, you know, how much of this is despair, and we need to try to address that kind of despair. And it seems like 2016 has been a year of celebrity deaths, and a lot of these celebrities are dying from overdoses. We're finding out, you know, through toxicology reports, we're finding out that they, you know, Prince was on fentanyl yeah. and, uh, you know, others. It, what's your what's your stance on this? How I mean, how do you think these these A list type people are being affected by addiction? Well, I mean, I think that if you look at um, addiction rates, there are clearly occupations that are especially high risk, and celebrities uh, tend to be really high risk as well as really really poor people. So, what do those have in common? Um, one of the things that they have in common is that they have sort of structureless time a lot of the time. But the other, and I think more important thing is that like when you have everything that you want, it can become as meaningless as having nothing that you want. And so, you know, I also think that celebrities are at high risk because the drive and the compulsiveness and the obsessiveness and the persistence that allows you to get through all the rejection and all the hard work and all the stuff that you have to deal with to get there is exactly the kind of thing that people um, do in terms of addiction. I mean, what is what does your research show on using iboga to treat heroin addiction, ayahuasca, things like that? I mean, I think that uh, clearly some people find those things helpful. Um, I think that Ibogaine, um, there is, uh, there have been some deaths associated with it. Um, and it's certainly the case that a one shot treatment is rarely going to fix something as complex and long lived as addiction. Um, Howard Lotsoff, who discovered that, um, Ibogaine, uh, relieves, uh, opioid withdrawal, um, told me this story once that I've never forgotten. And he said that, you know, he gave it to a couple of his um, friends who were also heroin addicts. And, you know, he got up and he was like, wow, I'm not in withdrawal. I don't have to get high. I'm free. Yay. And the others was like, were like, wow, I'm not in withdrawal. Let me go score. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's like you really have to understand, you know, if people don't have anything else in their lives, um, or if people's like identity is really wrapped up in you know being an active drug user, um, you know unless you come up with things that are going to deal with that, you know simply with relieving the withdrawal or simply having the insight that wow this is like a huge problem for me, which a lot of people can get during the psychedelic experiences, um, and they can get insight into trauma and all kinds of other things. But that insight alone is often not enough. If you don't have support, if you don't have, you know, um, something else to live for, it can be really, really difficult. So I think, you know, again, we want to have as many tools as we possibly can have to help people recover. And I think we definitely need more research on all of that kind of stuff. But I think it's equally dangerous to call those things cures and to make, um, to overpromise because that's the history of addiction treatment. It's like people are go around proclaiming this is a cure and very quickly they find out that it isn't. Yeah, that's a safe perspective. Um, I mean, Maya, what, what is the single, you know, first thing that perhaps someone that is listening to our voices right now can do that is struggling from, for, from addiction and wants to, 
you know, sure. not suffer anymore? Um, I always suggest that people start with a complete psychiatric evaluation by somebody who is not affiliated with any rehab or any addiction program at all. Um, because so many people with addiction have trauma and have um, other psychiatric disorders, it's really good to know what's going on from the start so that you can find um, the kind of help that's best for you. Uh, so that I certainly recommend. I definitely also recommend um, if you have an opioid addiction, the safest treatment options are methadone and buprenorphine. And don't worry about, oh, I'm replacing one addiction with another. That is absolutely not the case because when you use methadone or buprenorphine in an appropriate way, when you take it in a steady, regular dose, you are not high. You are not impaired. You can drive, you can love your partner, you can take care of your kids, you can do everything that anybody else can do. And so you are not addicted. You may still be physically dependent, but you know, I'm physically dependent on Prozac because if I stop taking Prozac, I will probably get depressed again. Does that mean I'm addicted to Prozac? No. Um, so I think it's really important to look at, um, maintenance medications in that light and to not fall for the stigma that we have associated with them. Um, I think we really need to fight that. Uh, I also think that, you know, people with addiction should read other stories of addiction, talk to other people with addiction, realize that there are many, many different paths and that if one doesn't work for you, you can try another one. Um, realize that even though you can't feel it right now, there are almost certainly people in your life that totally love you and really care about you and are not trying to control you or take away your fun, but they can see from their outside perspective that what you're doing isn't working. Mm -hmm. So those are, I think, some of the key bits of advice I would give. Is there a point that you find with people who are suffering from this disease that they are just kind of numb to everything? Well, yeah, that's what you want. Um, you know, um, I think, you know, when people are in that state that they're trying to achieve, they're really tuned out from the world. Um, but, you know, uh, if you could stay like that, it wouldn't be addiction. It would be nirvana, right? Um, but you can't and you don't, and that doesn't work on this world. So what you have to do if somebody does seem really tuned out is approach them at a different time. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, Maya, I, I really appreciate, you know, everything what you're, you're doing, you know, destigmatizing de this is, I think, so huge and so important. And really discussing this as much as possible, I think, is, is, is crucial. Your story is, is huge. And I mean, I, congratulations for, you know, kind of beating this and, and coming forward and, and talking about it. Thanks. Yeah, no, I mean, it's been really an amazing journey. And, you know, I, it's funny, because I, you know, get asked to give advice at journalism schools and stuff like this. And I don't want to say, well, go shoot up for a few years, you know, that would be a bad plan. And I certainly don't recommend that. Um, but because of having had the experience that I have had, unfortunate as that experience may be, I have been able to give a lot that I wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. And I have been able to understand um, situations that I might not have otherwise been able to do so. So, you know, um, I guess you can make lemonade, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Maya, where can people find your work? Where can people kind of get to your website? Give us that. 
Oh, sure. So I am at um, just Maya as Z. So it's M-A-I-A, S like Sam, Z like zebra dot com. Uh, I also have a uh, bi-monthly column at Vice. And I write for a bunch of different places. And the book can be found at you know, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, um, hopefully independent bookstores. Um, and yeah, uh, so those are a few ways. Thank you so much, Maya. This is The Human Experience. We will see you guys next week.